changemakers, peace builders, human rights defenders, and youth activists. To all of you who are listening, a very warm welcome. This is the Change Rebels podcast, the podcast that brings you stories from the changemakers at the front line of youth peace and security. This is Emily Vesky. One day, I will become president and I will bring a law that will stop people from fighting and stop using guns and bombs. Young people are not subjects to be protected, but should be seen as citizens with equal rights, as full members of our societies, and as powerful agents of change. Voices of privilege are often the voices that get to be part of organizations that create change. And why are they the ones calling the shop? The theme of this podcast is youth, peace, and security. Right. But in that, democracy is like a huge part and participation is a huge part because it's like one of the five pillar stones in prevention. Sure. Uh, in, in building sustainable peace, so to say. So that's why I think this research is super, super interesting. And it's very few who are actually conducting research on this topic. That's correct. So uh, today we are speaking about the latest trends and research on democratic participation in youth peace and security. 2019 was the worst year for democracy globally and the Global Peace Index fell again for the ninth time in 12 years. At the same time, there are clear directions coming from the UN Secretary General. Prevention, including that of violent conflict, is the priority. The active engagement of young women and men can make a critical difference in averting violence and war. This should be recognized, supported and promoted as a critical precondition for the success of efforts to build enduring peace." End of quote. And our guest is Jana Birke Belschner, PhD degree at the University of Bergen in Norway. And you just this August had your thesis defense specifically about political inclusion of youth. Can you tell us a little bit about what do we actually know about youth and democracy and why should we care? Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me first. So it's always very nice, I think, for anyone who's doing research to talk to the general public. And especially if you are, as me, researching a topic which which I think is super relevant and which is really relevant all around the globe, right? Because it's not only um, a topic uh, relevant for for the global south or for the global north, but it's really when you when we speak about youth inclusion in uh, in, in connection to democracy, this is equally relevant in uh, newly democratizing states. It's uh, relevant in autocratic settings, but it's also relevant in um, northern European um, established democracies, as we as we all know, I guess. And there are examples, um, I just want to pull a few, like yeah. there's still countries where you cannot run for election if you're younger than 45. Absolutely. In many countries, if you belong to certain subgroups, you're not even eligible to vote, even though most countries today allow voters from 18. Yeah. But then it comes up to like voter participation where we see young people are definitely like in, in a much smaller extent, participating in national elections. Exactly. It's also other things like peace processes and dialogues where young people are not being included in either the preparation, the implementation, or the evaluation of actual 
government policies. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's very interesting that you are making the link between what what is traditionally called political participation. Very often we think of voting, but obviously there are a lot of, um, of alternative ways uh, of uh, political participation, right? So in civil society, in demonstrations, in protesting. But then, and this is what I do in my, in my dissertation, I also look at representation because I think that this is tightly connected, right? That... Um, we, we cannot think political participation without thinking of being member in a political party, influencing the policy agenda, and eventually also running for election and being elected to parliament. And this has really been a topic which has seldom been uh, researched with regards to youth, right? I mean, you are a young MP when you are under 40 or under 45 years old, because most MPs are really older than this. So we speak of a different group of young people when we think of representatives than of um, of voters, but we mean the uh, the idea that a generation, for example, should feel that they are represented and that, that they do have power to influence uh, the policy agenda and that they do have possibilities and access to um, formal political participation. I think this is super interesting. I did myself conduct um, election analysis after the last Swedish election in Sweden, 2018, on a local level, municipality level. And we found, looking at all the political parties, their, their actual list of nominees for the parliament, uh, we saw that young people, uh, so the, the voting age 18 to 30, represented about 20, roughly 20% of the specific municipality. Did we look on the, on the political party list? We saw that they were basically amounting to around 8, 10, possibly 11% of the list. Did we look at the other age, the other end of the age group, 65 to 80, uh, where uh, we could see that they were representing about 10% of the local community, but filling up 30, over 30% of the political party lists? And this is a, a very common pattern, you know, and now the, the Scandinavian states, so Sweden, Norway and Denmark, already have comparatively high uh, rates of young candidates and young politicians. So it's even worse in most, in most other countries, right? And it's, and, and it's especially bad um, because there is, um, there is a negative relationship between the, the population age and the representation rate. So the older... This is like statistically spoken, right? So the older the population is, the the higher is the share of young MPs. Uh, because in many countries, um, for example, in, in many African states, but also in many Southeast, uh, Southeast uh, Asian states, you have very, very high shares of very young populations. So very often they are more than half than the population, uh, but they are basically absent from any political power. So when we, when we think of, um, of democracy and of representativeness, it tends to get even worse when you have younger populations. And I think what is interesting, looking now at your research and then looking back at the, basically the first global research that was ever conducted on youth peace and security by Graham Simpson, the so-called The Missing Peace, what was said there is that a lot of young people 
kind of addressed this exclusion as a type of violence of exclusion because what happens is it's kind of like a psychological exclusion of young people where they are not really owners of their society neither politically socially culturally or economically a lot of young people in this report and in the focus groups kind of described it not as being symptomatic but to be the actual cause and that it was consciously omitted on them in order to hinder them to, from participating could you maybe go in and a little bit explain more specifically about your research because you wrote a thesis on uh, the political inclusion of youth quotas parties and elections in democratic and democratizing states what did you find well i mean of course i i find a lot but but the exactly what you are saying is there is very little research so far i mean it is it is starting but there is little research connecting the uh, the issues of participation and of inclusion and of representation so i really focused on inclusion and representation so i in my in my thesis i'm uh, or in my dissertation i ask about the policies that are designed to 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 ease the access for youth into the political system so specifically youth quotas which is a super interesting policy because it's a policy that that uh, is a bit trendy right now so it started around uh, the 2000s and it really has 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 gone gone up uh, quite a lot so by now we have about 10 countries using legislated youth quotas uh, and also a number uh, of of political parties which is um, which is rapidly growing um, uh, having internal provisions to uh, to include youth um, both on their candidate lists uh, but also among their uh, their members uh, so that was like the first focus of the thesis was quotas um, because we know from from gender and politics research that electoral quotas so usually we think of quotas as gender quotas right so uh, a, a quota um, is simply a share of uh, for example if you have an electoral list um, then you can 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 legislate or can um, can have a provision saying that a certain percentage of those uh, list spaces should be reserved for some groups for example for women so again this is like the the prototype of, uh, of, of quota that a party for example says every second candidate on the list has to be a woman and then this is this is a, a regulation and uh, leading to the fact that at least the candidacies are gender balanced doesn't need to mean that uh, that you will have 50% uh, women in parliament so this is really the the design of the of the quota uh, but what is interesting is is that this prototype of uh, of policy is now extended to to other underrepresented groups so first to ethnic minorities but again in the like in the last decade uh, it has also um, become used more to include youth and obviously it's uh, it's a bit easier to define gender quota like uh, it should apply to female candidates that's quite straightforward right and females uh, or women tend to be the like the half of of the population in almost all countries it's a bit more complicated for youth so first of all you need to agree on um, on an age so who is young I think most of our listeners are now like, but obviously it's defined by age. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But this is actually super problematic. Yes. We have some countries where you are considered a youth until you turn 40, basically. Yeah. And some other countries where you have uh, 
for example, you can be married off yeah. already at, yeah. at the age of 13. Right. So what is to be a youth? What is to be a youth is a very good question. And especially when we talk about uh, political representation, right? Because as you, as you said earlier, it's also about giving a signal. When you, when you have a legislation saying you're first allowed to even allowed to run for office uh, once you turn 30, 35, or even 40, that's a quite powerful signal before you are not like a complete citizen, right? It's, uh, it's, you are exempted from, from, from some quite fundamental rights. Um, and so this is also something that the, the quotas have to deal with. Because one thing is being allowed, so being eligible, uh, being allowed to run for office. But the other thing is uh, forcing the political parties also to nominate young, young candidates. So usually the, the youth quotas uh, are designed as to apply to, um, to, to uh, candidates under 30, 35 or 40. So those are the, the three thresholds. Um, uh, that 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 exists, and then obviously it's uh, de it depends on your electoral system how you how you de design them. So I was interested in my dissertation, which countries adopted youth quotas and why did they do so? Uh, because I think this is very interesting. You know, like um, uh, what what are the dynamics behind the adoption of youth quotas? And then the second big question: How do parties deal with the with the youth quotas? So how do they identify? the young candidates, which young candidates are actually running, how old are them. Um, so just to give a preview, one, one of, the, of the findings is that they tend to be quite old. <laughs> so when the, when the quota says 35 is the upper limit, then uh, the candidate will often be 34 <laughs> when he or she runs. And very often, uh, youth quotas uh, occur together with gender quotas. So all states that have adopted uh, youth quotas also adopted gender quotas, which means that young women are uh, attractive candidates to fulfill those quotas, which is in principle a good thing, I think, because we see also in when we when we when we look at uh, the dynamics of youth representation that young women are specifically underrepresented. So uh, young people are super underrepresented and young women even more so. So worldwide about two thirds of young MPs when we when we think of under 40 uh, are male and only one third uh, female. So in my opinion, it makes sense to, to, to think gender and age together when we, when we think of um, making representation more representative and more fair. Definitely. I think this is an interesting development. Back in the Missing Piece uh, research, uh, they, they were looking at, first of all, the, where there are quotas in general, and some were really appreciative and thought it was working well. Others were like a little bit more critical because just because you have youth participation doesn't mean that you have a youth perspective. And this is something that we've seen maybe most famously with the Saudi Arabian youth representatives to the G20 meetings, which are almost like youth hostile in the kind of policies that they are uh, pushing in these platforms. Uh, but I'm also thinking about like young women because what it said in the Missing Peace report uh, was that when we think about youth participation and especially peace and democracy, what you tend to focus at living in like a more globalized world that also has kind of like a terrorism goggles on it because we have had some big, huge 
uh, like symbolic historically defining things happening in the past 20 years uh, that kind of affected how we view globalization and development and we see that when it, it comes to young people in media it's usually when we're talking about them as terrorists in the terms of gang violence and that also affects how we shape our policies that it tended to be now almost four years back when the missing peace report was written that most of the young people that then were actually democratically included and uh, were allowed to participate in peace processes or policy making were young men who had some sort of previous background in violence crime uh, and and the the young people that were all the time working with sort of the peace continuum and, and building peace they were not to the same extent invited to draw these kind of policies. But now what I hear from you is that that kind of have changed. Can you reflect a little bit on that? Absolutely. Um, and I think what, what you what you mentioned is super interesting because this is really about the framing of youth and, and how it how it is changing. But you still, I mean, youth are very often framed as a problem, you know, like uh, as terrorists, so as a security issue. But also when we when we when we read about the youth bulge, for example, you know, like growing or big youth populations are seen as a problem uh, more more so than than as a chance and uh, as a big potential for for a country uh, i would say um, and this is of course rooted in in, in, in traditions and maybe also stereotypes of seniority of you know like you need a lot of experience uh, to be considered an adult um, so when we were, we were talking about eligibility ages right and this also relates to to the to the issue of political power when we when we speak of um, representation the like the, the the first part we would want is presence and this is what we can quite well achieve with uh, youth quotas for example so then we have youth present there but exactly as you say this is not an automatic um, mechanism leading to them having influence and power uh, on the political agenda and on specific policies and this is also um, what I what I find in my dissertation and I think um, what I what I at least try to to critically reflect you know because I find that in so I focus on North Africa right on, on Tunisia and and to a certain extent on on, on Morocco because we had the, the the youth participation in the in the Arab uprisings in 2011 so that was very prominent so we would we would assume or I assumed at least when I started my research that they were you know like fighting for political participation fighting for political inclusion but effectively it was more like regimes were willing to provide them with political presence you know so so they were demonstrating mainly um with regards to unemployment which is a big problem in in in, in tunisia and also in morocco and which is a specific youth issue um and and like economic policies uh, uh the prices of of goods um were were really a problem for for the young but this is difficult to offer for for regimes right because this is like a lot of money and, and this is a lot of of things that they that they would like to provide but that they are not, not able to provide so what they tended to do both in tunisia and morocco was to say okay let's let's give them you know participation let's give them a youth quota 
this doesn't need to mean that this is a bad thing to do, right? But it also means that we need to critically look not only how does the youth quota work and does it bring youth to political decision-making, but also what happens afterwards. So do they have real influence in parliament? Which, uh, uh, which positions do they have? In which committees are they sitting? You know, very often it's like, okay, you can go to the, uh, uh, to the sports committee, for example. And as I said before, this is not what the what what youth on the on the street would uh, would also expect from from young representatives. But obviously, it's a process, right? So I, I also think, um, as I said, youth quotas and and the the idea the the simple idea that youth should not only be participating as voters, but that they should also be represented in in uh, like in governments and parliaments, so close to actual political power. This is a quite recent idea. So we we may need some patience to see to what extent, just by their presence, they may also be able to to gain power and to change the political process and to make sure that um, youth perspectives uh, are heard, but are also taking seriously enough to 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 change policy in the end. Uh, I. I think it's very interesting how you get into now with Tunisia and Morocco and I know in the Global Peace Index for 2019 it specifically mentions that sure we've had the, the biggest number of protests and riots and strikes in Europe uh, but the biggest increase of riots and protests and, de uh, and demonstrations which have not been that visible in media either has been on the African continent and uh, also looking at, for example, their Arab Spring, actually Northern Africa and the Middle East have to a much lesser degree um, had these kind of protests where we had both the uprising of very strict authoritarian regimes, but also these states that you mentioned that are like almost like looking at the youth population and like, okay, so we need to calm this situation down. How can we do it? And the way to like, to, to be escalating Uh, conflict and violence in your country is to go in and provide different types of youth policies. Can you explain a little bit further, like what motivates these days that you've been looking at? Well, I mean, it's it, it's 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 very dependent on on which type of state you're looking at, obviously, right? So, in uh, in one of the articles, my my dissertation is based on. As I said, I, I look on, on, on Tunisia and, and, and Morocco. Morocco is an authoritarian system. It's a monarchy. So here it's really stabilization. It's exactly as you, uh, as you describe, right? So the, the main interest of the regime is to stay intact <laughs> because it's 2011. They say they see uh, Tunisia and Egypt uh, stumble. They see the, the leaders uh, fleeing so here it's really about okay we need to we need to keep this in, intact right so and and we want to do this in a way which does not cost us more legitimacy so ideally in a in a, in a peaceful way so here they um, here they reserved seats for uh, for youth representatives and the the palace so the the monarchy was in very close contact with the existing political parties and their youth wings 
so this is also interesting. I think obviously the the state or or the regime is not it's not something monolithic, but it really it's it's, it's different actors with with their specific interests, and then they need to have this this connection to to the youth population who are demonstrating, who are on the streets, who have specific um, demands, um, and this often uh, happens via the the uh, the political parties and their youth organizations. In Tunisia, the, the situation was a bit different because the regime um, crumbled down quite quickly, right? Ben Ali uh, fled the country. There were uh, very few political parties still existing because it was all controlled before. So in, in Morocco, we have like a more vivid scene of political parties, which is a bit funny because it's like considered now as a more autocratic system. But in Tunisia, it was really the case that you had like uh, experts, some uh, party activists uh, returning from, um, uh, from from the exile. So you did not really have like a consolidated regime that, that could... Uh, that could react to, uh, to, 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 to those demands. Uh, but what happened was that in 2011, when the, um, uh, the Constitutional Assembly was elected, that they already had quite a few number of young representatives. They did not use a youth quota in 2011, but since it was a body that was elected from, you know, like civil society activists, uh, NGOs, so it was not it was not the typical parliament where uh, political parties uh, have have most candidates or all candidates. So this allowed unconventional uh, voices, I would say. And I mean, influence in a constitutional assembly, this is like a powerful influence, right? So um, what happened here was, uh, and oh, this is the story I, I, I tell based on, um, based on the data I collected. So this is, uh, this is a lot of interviews, but also newspaper articles, uh, articles and Twitter data. So what happened, what happened here was that in 2014, so right before before they were designing the electoral code, some young deputies said, let's put in a youth quota there. It's super important that we achieve to include the, um, uh, the youth and to represent the youth. Uh, I think part of the story is also that um, the Tunisian um, transition process has been monitored by a lot of international actors. Um, uh, the UN was was heavily involved. Uh, so here, this is also, I mean, this is part of the trend, right? To think of, um, of, of represent, representativeness when you are in process of, dem of democratization, which is, again, a good thing, you know? But then... As I said, presence is just the first step. Presence works very well in Tunisia, both on the national and on the, especially on the local level. A lot of youth are now uh, engaged in, and have been elected to the local councils. But yes, it, it simply remains to be seen to what extent they will be able to um, to actually influence uh, policy agendas. And I would say it's easier and, and maybe more realistic to, to look at the local level for this um, because a lot of issues for youth are, um, are really also located at the local level. Specifically the Moroccan context uh, for our listeners, because when you're saying keeping the country together when it comes to Morocco, I, I guess that you're hinting to the situation with West Sahara. 
uh, and I know that there's a lot of young people in West Sahara that have organized and formed groups and they're trying to uh, push for uh, liberation or, or independence of West Sahara. And I'm wondering if you can, if you can expand a little bit on uh, what they are protesting for, what, what it means to keep the country together and why is youth and state on, on different ends? And the same with Tunisia. It's, it's quite interesting. You mentioned Twitter data. And I know that uh, the digital movement uh, on the African continent has been, has been like one of the most important tools to actually push for change. On the other hand, we have more and more countries, uh, both in Africa, but also in the rest of the world, where the governments are trying to limit uh, the use of both internet, data, networks. Uh, we even have like situations in, in Kenya where the most recent law that's being pushed is trying to hinder who can sign up as an administrator for a WhatsApp group or a Facebook group. So you would have to be certified by your government to set up a WhatsApp group or a Facebook page. Is this the same situation in Tunisia? Um, no, I wouldn't say so, especially not now, because Tunisia uh, is really like on, on a very good way, I, I would say, dem- democratically speaking. So um, they they have a very liberal um, government in this in this regard. It's a quite democratic government. So they uh, they, they, do, they do hold regular uh, elections. And in Tunisia, what, what is what is very interesting. So Facebook was important, but also mobile phones. So it was it, it was not exclusively uh, Exactly because the internet was very um, limited uh, in the in the, the times of, of Ben Ali, so uh, what people did was to phone themselves uh, and, and each other. So um, uh, so I think people will find a way, and especially the the, the youth, they are incredibly savvy in, in all this so in all those regards. So it is difficult. It, it's super difficult for a regime, especially for for regimes in fragile states, you know, which don't have a lot of resources. It's different if we if we speak of China or of Russia, you know, but but when we when we speak of, of fragile states, um, of, of regimes uh, struggling with uh, resources, it is very difficult to um, to 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 keep the youth under control without using any soft measures, uh, and this is what I mean by keeping the country together by offering them things that that do not hurt the regime too much, um, but they but 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 that also do not endanger the regime. But this is obviously, I mean, um, this is a very difficult task both for a regime and also for. Uh, for, for, for those young representatives because you are always in a, in a dilemma of uh, representing a state that you may not um, that, 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 that you may not uh, agree with. So this is also why I, I specifically looked at Tunisia because Tunisia is, is, is or has become a very democratic state. Because I think as soon as you go into autocratic or hybrid regimes, um, there are a lot more dilemmas that potential young candidates are faced with. You know, I I understand if you if you are not willing, if you are an engaged youth in in Morocco, for example, you are not willing to um, to run as a candidate for any of the parties because all of them are more or less um, supporting the um, the existing political system. 
so this is also why I think that this uh, represent and and why I I titled my thesis uh, democratic and democratizing states rather than autocratic and hybrid regimes uh, because I really think that we should make a distinction here. If I do not agree with the political system in itself, it doesn't make sense that I that I run in within the the electoral system that this state uh, offers me. Uh, but then it really is, uh, you know, it, it it really makes sense to think of political participation as protesting, as being outside the um, the formal political process because I don't agree with the fo- with how the formal political process is designed. For example, with just one political party. But in democratizing states, this is and this this is really the. Um, um, the link I'm looking at, you know, like this moment when you when you have the chance, when you are building a new democratic system, when you have new institutions, you have new political parties. So this is really a window of opportunity, which is incredibly important to to use for youth inclusion and for to to motivate youth. Be with us. Uh, contribute to um, to how you want this uh, this this country to look like. But again, there are a lot of uh, established elites, political elites, that tend to be uh, older men usually, and that are skeptical uh, towards um, seizing power and and towards letting the youth uh, taking influence and and decide on issues. Uh, and again, it's it's about power, you know. It's well known. Um, people won't simply give up power, but this is what needs to be achieved by, for example, by uh, increasing the presence of youth to a level where they can't be marginalized anymore. I I think this will be a great round off. Uh, I, I feel like we can deep dive into this topic. But, uh, really recommend everyone to to read your thesis i I guess it's a we will make it available somehow yeah please (laughs) the last question for me i'm thinking like we have these reports the peace index the global uh, uh, democracy index and peace and democracy are declining in the world right before corona we had like millions and millions of people mostly young people out protesting against corruption against poverty against unemployment against like uh, you know authoritarian regimes do you have any message now after your research do you have any tools you can provide do you have any uh, do you see any trends that can give us like some sort of hope as change makers in terms of building democracy and building a better sustainable society Okay, those are big questions. <laughs> of course, I do not have like one answer uh, that will make the world a better one. But I think one one very important message that I that I have and that is based on on my research is that we really should try to not think of informal political participation, so of protesting, demonstrating, signing petitions, as something that is that is separated from formal political uh, participation, but that we really need to, to, to try seeing this as a chance, as a, as a pool. I mean, I, uh, I, I recently spoke to, um, to a Norwegian journalist who asked me, uh, you know, like all oh, the parties, uh, they are losing members and the youth don't want to be uh, active in, in political parties. So what can they do? 
And I think this is this is a question uh, that's super important. Like, what can the parties do? You know, not not just uh, oh, the the youth uh, they don't want to participate, so we simply need to uh, rely on the personal we have had the last 30 years. But really, like the parties need to see the potential of the of the youth, and this is true for all contexts. Again, um, for established democracies with aging populations. But also for for younger democracies that that will want a sustainable political system, so do not see the youth as um, as something you need to be scared of or as something that some actors that are unbearable or that can be even dangerous or that do not want to participate. But this is really I I think that protesting and demonstrating this is a good thing you know they are politically engaged uh, they are not just sitting home and doing nothing uh, and also online activism for example it's just a different form of how i can how I, how i can be involved how i can engage myself so um i think it's super important that political parties are aware of of those youth um, not just as something that threatens uh, their political power, but as as a group that needs needs to be won. Um, and I mean, I was often thinking, you know, yes, youth want democracy, but democracy also wants and needs youth. So you you need you need to win this um, this group of population, and you need to include them. And they are there. So, and and I mean, there are very there are some very co concrete suggestions uh, that are out there. For example, uh, lowering the voting age. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I think that in many countries you are first allowed to vote when you are 18 or even 21. But I mean, you can be super um, influential by going to to demonstrations, and it's simply frustrating if you are not allowed to vote. I mean, it's why shouldn't you? You know, when you are 16. And uh, Norway uh, just did an experiment. They they reduced the voting age to 16 in some in some municipalities and local elections. And 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 they do see an increase in in uh, in parts in voting participation, right? In formal participation, because when you are politically interested, usually you tend to engage in in, in more than one for, uh, form of uh, of political activity. So those who are demonstrating very often would like to vote, but then maybe once once they are 18, <laughs> they they can be frustrated. You know, now I've been demonstrating for three or four years. I was allowed to vote. I, I, I may move to another city to study. So I also think that this is uh, so, so, so uh, reducing the voting age, reducing eligibility ages is another thing, not signaling to, to people you can first uh, be elected to office when you are 30 uh, or even 25 years old, um, which is also a common uh, threshold. Political parties often have youth wings, which is a good thing. But on the other hand, it's also you are usually a member of the youth party until you are 35, uh, which I find is quite quite old, right? And and so um, it's interesting because newer parties very often don't have any youth wings anymore because they say, you know, like uh, all our members tend to be young, so we don't really need this. Older parties may want to think about giving the youth wing more formal influence uh, on policy formulation. 
this is also something that that works very differently in different countries. So as I said, I'm I myself I'm from 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 Germany, and there the youth uh, the youth wings of the political parties are really not influential. Uh, so sometimes you hear some positions of them, but they mainly serve as a as, as a pool of offspring where the like uh, the adult party um is, is is picking some personal once they 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 turn 35 36 in contrary in in norway the um the the youth wings uh, have quite high influences so they are really a political power uh, so it's also more attractive uh, for 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 young people to uh, to become a member i mean you know, when you when when the parties would try to think more of the of the perspective of of young people, you need to ask yourself: Would I want to be a member if I'm, you know, just just uh, put away for the next ten years, like grow up, and then we can talk? <laughs> so uh, I think this is uh, those are three important points. Of course, I mean, youth quotas uh, can be very effective and very. Um, fast track measure uh, to increase the the political representation of youth but when we think of representation as really one part of the process and and of a circle going from uh, participating voting uh, being a party member being represented influencing the policy agenda which in turn may increase youth political participation right so if you if you feel that your issues are on the agenda you may also uh, be more inclined to vote um then we should really think of the whole uh, process um and not just of single measures that may aim at uh, remediating simply one thing of, of the circle. Thank you so much, Jana. And what you said that youth are calling for or need democracy, but democracy also needs youth. I think this will really stay with me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.